I used to be a regional manager for a national Christian charity, and it was truly an amazing workplace, not because it was the most interesting role that I've ever had, or was it, you know, this amazing salary or something like that. It was because there were around 30 staff members working in an office together, and in the years that I worked there, I don't ever remember hearing a single bit of gossip. Isn't that amazing? 30 staff members in an office, not a single bit of gossip. Now, maybe that was in part because we had a table tennis table in the office, and at every break, we played table tennis as hardcore as we possibly could. But I think all in all, it was because being Christians, we were filled with the love of Christ, we were focused on the mission of the charity, and you could accept that there were some differences because we had a goal that we were on. And so, gossip was inappropriate to followers of Christ. As an aside, it was a pretty cool place to work. Everyone on their birthday, the CEO would carry out a cake with candles in it, and everyone would sing happy birthday. On my birthday, the CEO carried out a plate of ribs with a candle in it. Come on, that's, that's pretty impressive. Now, this is opposed to when I was a wharfie. So if you don't know what a wharfie is, the guys loading and unloading ships. There were over 100 men, only men, who worked on the wharves. And the gossip was so constant and harmful. Non-stop, oh, that guy's a company man, or that guy's so tight, or that guy just sucks up to management to get the good shifts, or that guy over there is under the thumb at home. And it just went on and on and on. And part of the reason I quit was the gossip, hypocrisy, and slander just made it a hard place to work. And for those of us who have been in the workforce, you get that, don't you? A good job can be made bad, a bad job can be made good, depending on who you're working with. Negative people who like to spend a full shift hour after hour, pointing out how bad everything is. Ah, right? It just makes a shift long and difficult. People who just want to complain about everyone they work with, pretty much a guarantee you know that when they're not working with you, they're complaining about you. This sucks up morale, ruins productivity, and makes a shift difficult. Sadly, really sadly, churches can be the same. I believe with all my heart you will never hear Jesus say of a constantly negative and bitter person, well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Because you can guarantee if you are always negative and complaining, you are not focused on the mission that Christ has given us. If all, all you've got is negativity and complaining, then you're not focused and, on Christ and the gospel, right? So this is important. So last week, we looked at how we are supposed to, in the church, have brotherly love for one another, that because we are born again, we would love one another constantly. Now, this is a massive theme of the New Testament. It's there repeated again and again and again. Now, this morning, 
what Peter does for us, we're starting chapter 2 this morning, what Peter does for us is he gives us a list of things to avoid if we are going to love one another constantly. So we've got that we should love one another constantly because we are born again, we're born again of the Spirit, we are being made into the image of God, now he gives, gives us a list of things to avoid if we're going to love one another constantly because these things will ruin the constancy of our love. All right, so if you have your Bible, you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 to 3. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander, like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. All right, therefore, that critical word we always have to pay attention to. Therefore, so it's a response to what has come before. Something has come before, so it means therefore. And it's really coming back to verse 23 of chapter 1, right? The fact that we have been born again. If we are born again of the Spirit, if we are born again out of the kingdom of the world, out of slavery to the world, into the kingdom of the Lordship of Jesus, it's going to change how we live. So Peter said, in the positive, it's going to make you live a life of constant love and unity in the church. And now he's going to say... These are the things that are inappropriate that you must avoid if you're going to live a life of constant love and unity in the church. Why? Because you have been born again. Okay, so that is the point of our passage. Each of these will rip apart the unity and constant love of the church. Now, each one of these requires a daily decision not to engage in. Each one requires a conscious choice to choose love and affection instead of what this offers. Now, we're going to work through the list, and obviously, the first half of this sermon is going to be pretty heavy. It's kind of impossible to avoid that. Here's the thing. As we work through, if your mind begins to say, so-and-so really needs to hear this, you are probably the problem. Right? Full stop. You are probably the problem. Remember what Jesus said? Before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, do what? Take the plank out of your own. So if you're sitting here this morning worrying about the speck, Jesus is saying to you, plank, Right? So think about yourself. And as a church, if we deal with the planks in our own eyes, trust me, we won't even be that worried about the speck because we'll be back on the mission. All right? So let's deal with the plank. So apply these to our own life first, each of us. To begin, malice. Now, malice is the desire to cause harm, pain, injury suffering or distress to another person. 
Now, I doubt there are too many people in church who want to cause injury to another person, excluding if they use Scripture out of context, that's fine. But anyway, um, no, 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 right? There's not too many of us who want to cause an injury to another person. However, the root of sin can grow in our hearts so that we can willingly want to cause distress to another person. And this in the church is most often done through gossip, through the spreading of rumors about others designed to harm. Now, people rarely, maybe sometimes, but they rarely make something up entirely. What's more harmful is they take an element of truth and they twist it. They change it, designed to intentionally distort and harm another person. Remember, to only tell half the story or to twist the other story to paint someone in a bad light is still a lie. And if it's designed to harm, then it's malice, right? We have to be careful of this in the church. Now, most of us are well-versed enough in Christian behavior to not out-and-out attack someone. So it's a slow, steady, repeated attack that twists and alters how people view another person. Now, I want to put a little caution in. I've heard some people say you should never speak about another person unless they're in the conversation with you. And that's just ridiculous. Seriously, none of us can do that. We are going to talk about other people who are not there. And in fact, it's a good thing, isn't it? Like, what if I want to say to someone, you know, like, did you hear uh, Russ broke his leg? Maybe we could get together a mowing roster, right? I'm talking about someone who's not there, but my intent is to help them. Is that not a good thing, right? Like, or... Maybe, maybe I want to come up to somebody else. I come up to Calvin and I'm like, hey, Calvin, do you know someone in the church who might be helpful in this particular area? Maybe I'm, you know, I'm struggling with my job and I'm finding it really hard and I don't know if I should quit. And I'm like, Calvin, do you know someone in the church who might have been through this who could help me out? And he's like, yeah, so-and-so went through that a couple of years ago. They'd be great for you to talk to. These are good things. So we do talk about other people in the church and that's appropriate. What is the clear and simple question of when it's appropriate or not? It's straightforward, isn't it? What is our intent? Is our intent to wound? Is our intent to subtly make others change their opinion negatively about someone? Or is our intent to build up to love one another constantly? It's that simple, right? If your intent is to wound, then that is malice, and we should shut our mouth. That's what Peter is saying. In the church, if your intent to talk about someone is other than to build them up, then shut your mouth in the church. Or, if there's an issue, go to them one-on-one and talk to them about it. And if that doesn't resolve the issue, bring a mature Christian to have the conversation. We know Matthew 18 and how it tells us to go about resolving a conflict. Otherwise, we shut our mouths. Malice. Two, deceit. Now, deceit is different because its goal might not be malicious. 
Deceit may be because of the insecurities of the deceiver, but its results can be damaging. It's difficult to love constantly if you lack trust, and deceit builds a powerful lack of trust. It's hard to love someone who never tells the truth, because who is it you're loving? If you never actually know what's real, then then how do you love that person? Now, again, it's actually not the big lie that's the problem. I once spoke at a church, and I was talking to the church afterwards, and this man came up to me, and I'd mentioned a rugby league story, and he found out I loved rugby league, and he came up to me and told me that he was the halfback for Manly in the NRL when they won seven consecutive premierships. Manly have never won seven consecutive premierships, and to have... Being the halfback and one seven means your playing career had to have been 40 years, right? This person would be simply the greatest, he'd be bigger than Don Bradman, right? It was just a lie, an out-and-out lie. There's no damage in that because you're like, that's just a lie, right? It's easy. But it's the subtle deceits. It's the constant little things that I tell to build myself up in the eyes of others to make myself seem more interesting, to twist the story in my favor. And all that reveals is your own lack of trust in the promises of God, your own lack of security in who Christ has called you to be. Constant lies and deceit reveals the flaws in your own love of Christ, right? That's the problem. It it brings disunity because no one knows who you are and what you truly represent. Thirdly, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy can be defined as the pretense of having a virtuous character, moral or religious beliefs or principles that we don't really possess. It's similar to deceit, but it's about definitely your personal actions and behaviors as a follower of Christ giving off the pretense of moral perfection. Now, I don't think hypocrisy is when you might stand for something as a Christian, you might agree with something as a Christian, and you stumble into sin in that area. I don't think that's hypocrisy, right? All of us believe as Christians that we should live a certain way, and we fail to live up to that standard. True? It's not because of hypocrisy, it's because we're sinners and we fail to meet the standard we believe in. Where does hypocrisy begin? Hypocrisy begins when we pretend that we do meet those standards. That's where the hypocrisy begins. When we want to pretend and put on a show to others that we have it all together. The hypocrisy begins in the pretense of our perfection, that we want to put on a show to say, guess what? Everything in my life is perfect, and I'm a perfect Christian. Guess what? You're not perfect. Your husband and your wife are not perfect. Your parenting is not perfect. Your children are not perfect. And to pretend otherwise is hypocrisy. Because we all know you're not. And it's stupid to pretend otherwise. And here's the other problem. The awful nature of hypocrisy is 
you're holding other people to a standard that doesn't exist. You're telling everyone else in the church, this is what it means to be a Christian. Look at how perfect I am. Look at my postcard family. We're just all amazing. And they're all going, gee, I can't live like you. And neither are you. We're all like these Instagram models with this postcard life, and it's a flat pretense. And I would say hypocrisy is one of the biggest sins of this church. As long as I've been in this church, the pretense people have of pretending that they're a perfect family is ridiculous, stupid, and sinful. It really is. Honestly, so your marriage is struggling. Guess what? A lot of people's are. Stop pretending otherwise. We are supposed to encourage one another in the gospel, and that means in our struggles, right? To come together, to work together. False lives don't create love and unity. Real lives as we share in the journey together, through the ups and downs, encouraging one another, rebuking one another, creates love and unity. All right? Hypocrisy just breeds a false church, a false concept of faith, and it destroys loving unity. Envy. This is pretty simple to understand, but envy will destroy unity. It makes the heart of the envious one bitter and can lead to malice. And it makes the person being envied a likely target of gossip and attack. After all, if you can't have what they have, you can at least make what they have less enjoyable for them. Right? You can at least attack them. I understand this. Beth and I, most of our married lives have worked in ministry. We worked for a faith-based mission organization for years where you weren't even allowed to tell people you needed money. Then I became a church planner. I didn't receive super for, for over five years because we just didn't have any money. We were church planners. And so we go by serving Jesus with our lives and basically often living day to day, not having much money. And then you talk to your friends on the phone who are settling into their career And they're telling you about how they've just bought a second house or they've just bought a new car. They've just bought whatever it might be. And you're like, that's great. You hang up the phone and Envy's going, I deserve that. Aren't I the one who's giving up all of my life for full-time ministry? Aren't I the one, Jesus, who should be getting that? How come they get it? The pure sin of Envy. The truth is, we are all recipients of grace. And we are all called to walk the walk, to do the good works prepared in advance for us to do in different ways, trusting God and working for His glory. Right? That's the truth. We can't all do the same job. If we were all architects with no builders, Society's not going to function very well, right? We're all called to fulfill different functions in the body of Christ. And all envy does is make our own hearts bitter because we no longer see the grace and the joy in the goodness of what God has called us to, right? Envy distorts and fails to appreciate what God has given us. 
Church, there's no place for envy in our hearts. Envy is yet another sign that we've stopped focusing on Christ and instead we're focusing on the material. So we've got to come back to Christ. Slander. Slander is, of course, spreading false stories about others or in general, putting them down, showing them, and here's the key, showing them that you do not respect or value them. Well-timed words that carry insinuations about others, which put them down, which make them feel underappreciated. It's very hard to be in a place where people constantly want to hint that you are unimportant or undervalued. Obviously, that does not bring love and unity. Remember, the general rule of thumb is to always present your opponent's position in the best possible light. There's some great truth to that. Always present somebody else's opinion in the best possible light. Don't present a straw man argument and then shoot that down, but present their position in the best possible light. Don't caricature someone. Argue against their best argument. To be fair, to paint people in a good position. Now, I've failed this at times, but I just found myself the other night in a theological kind of discussion about something, and I actually said to someone, I probably shouldn't continue here until there's someone who can argue the other side fairly. And I walked away and went, my goodness, there's a slight hint of growing up, Sam. Um, Right, like, hopefully we see these little steps and progressions in our lives because we don't want to argue a straw man. We want to present ourselves fairly, honestly, openly, and not bring others down through disparaging comments, okay? Present other people in the best possible light. That's the end of that particular list. So we can now turn around to a little bit more joy, which is great. Uh, but I want you to think about those things in our own lives, myself included. They're not appropriate for those who have been born again. Peter goes on, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word. Now, we're just going to pause here and recognize something really critical. This is not talking about, nor is that aimed at, brand new Christians. And people often want to do that. They're like, like a newborn infant, therefore it's talking about a brand new Christian. No, that is not what this passage is saying whatsoever. Many reading this letter that Peter is writing to would have been Christians a very long time. Others would have grown up in the church. This is talking to people who have been Christians for 50 years. Why is that so important? Because Peter is saying whether you've been a Christian for six weeks or whether you've been a Christian for 80 years, you should desire the Word of God like a newborn baby desires milk. That's the illustration. Right? It's got nothing to do with how long you've been a Christian. All Christians should desire the Word of God like a newborn baby desires their mother's milk. A newborn baby is nourished, is hungry for, is fed by their mother's milk. 
Christians of any length of time are fed by and are nourished by the Word of God and should hunger for it. The reality is, church, maybe you once hungered for the Word, but now it's a little ho-hum. And if you're dead honest, you haven't opened your Bible to read it yourself in months or years. The reality is the study of the Word will bring conviction of sin. The study of the Word will point out our hypocrisy. If we don't study the Word, we won't grow, we won't feel the conviction of sin requiring repentance, and we won't grow up in our salvation. This is what Peter is saying. Christian maturity has little to do with how long you've been a Christian. It has everything to do with your passion, love, discipline, and hunger in applying the Word of God to your life. Right? That is a sign of Christian maturity. So where does this desire come from? What causes this desire for the Word of God? What drives us to the Word of God? And, and Peter again makes you, church, makes me answer that question with a positive affirmation. He doesn't want to make the statement for you. He wants you to answer it in your own heart. Peter says, you will love the Word of God. You will hunger for the Word of God. You will be nourished and fed by the Word of God. You will grow up into your salvation by the Word of God if you have tasted that the Lord is good. He wants you to answer that question in your life, in your heart. Have I ever tasted that the Lord is good? If you have, Oh, then you, you have that, that taste met in His Word. You have that life brought in His Word. You have that nourishment reaffirmed and again and again in His Word because you've tasted that the Lord is good and the Lord speaks to you in His Word. And as you hunger because you've tasted that the Lord is good, it just drives you back again and again and again. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, but if you don't crave the Word, if you don't desire to be fed on its truth, then have you ever tasted that the Lord is good? And that's why Peter wants you to answer that question, if, if. The Gospel is called the Good News. And here is the gospel in a nutshell. I know we talk about this a lot, and guess what? We never will stop. The good news is this, that you're a sinner separated by God because of your total depravity. You are unable, unwilling, undesiring to please God in your natural fallen state. But God the Father in His great compassion and mercy sent His Son to live a perfectly obedient life and to give His life on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin, bearing the wrath of the Father, fully paying the cost of your sin. 
On the cross, he died bearing your guilt and shame. And when he rose again on the third day, it proved that the price was paid, that he had conquered sin and death. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you were actually included in his resurrection. You were given life in his name through his righteousness. He now sits at the right hand of the Father and your salvation is guaranteed because you are included in Christ where you will be with him forevermore on the basis of his finished work on the cross. Good news! You were saved on that base and that basis alone. That's it. That's, that's the good news. What does that mean? It means that if you taste how good that is, It's not about me. It's not about me trying to live up to my family's expectation. It's not about me trying to follow the law of the scriptures. It's not about me trying to put on a false pretense for the community. It's not about any of that. It's about me surrendering to what Christ has done. But that's the good news. And Peter says, if you have tasted that, If you have tasted what Christ has done to give you life, if you know that it's about grace, that God loves you and your salvation is guaranteed, then how can you not, knowing that the Lord is good, crave his word? That's what he's saying. That's what he wants us to understand. So church, I put it to you. You are not saved by not being envious, by not being hypocritical, by not being deceitful, by not being filled with malice. You're not saved by any of those things. And you will never not be those things on your own. But if you taste that the Lord is good, and you pursue Christ through his word, and he molds you into the image of Christ, in him you will be able to put aside malice. In him you will put aside deceit. In him you will put aside hypocrisy. Because you will have Christ and he is enough. And you won't need to lie to make yourself look good because you've got Christ and he's enough. You won't need to be hypocritical and put on a false false pretense of being perfect because you're not perfect, you're saved by grace. He's enough. But the answer is Christ. Put your faith in him. Pursue him because you've tasted he's good. And we will be a church of constant love. That's the goal. I pray you taste the Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for grace. Lord, that we are saved by... Christ paying the penalty of our sin on the cross, perfectly obedient, without sin. Lord, he rose on the third day, having conquered sin and death. And Lord, when we put our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that he paid the penalty of our sin, that it is finished that we are guaranteed eternal life through the finished work of Christ. Lord, why should we pretend? Why do we put on a falsehood? Why do we... Lord, we are saved by grace. 
Lord, may we rest in the grace of Christ. Encourage one another, support one another, rebuke one another, love one another constantly. We are all sinners saved by grace and all glory goes to Christ. May we not claim any for ourselves. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen.